and the allocation scheme that the vast majority of actual workers use when they're going, you know, when, when you got five of a certain part and you got eight people wanting it, right? Yeah. Which five people get one and which three people don't? Well, it, it's who yells the loudest. It's who has the <laughs> biggest rank on their collar. It's it's the prioritization scheme I call BOMB or bomb. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get the boss off my back. That's the prioritization <laughs> scheme. It is get me out of the doghouse. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now... Here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. Most people, when they start on their ERP journey, they feel it's more of a science, which engineers can figure out easily. But then they quickly realize that irrespective of whether the model is built on a spreadsheet or a complex computer program, it relies on quality of inputs in the context. And that's what makes ERP implementations so hard, as it's really more of an art than a science. And just like the way an artist gets better as they get more experience under their belt, the chances of ERP implementations would be higher as you figure out the art of ERP implementation. In today's episode, our guest Tom Pierce shares why ERP implementation is more of an art than science. He also talks about several issues related to ERP implementation projects, such as how siloed culture impact the outcome of ERP implementation, the disconnect between digital and physical processes, and how minor changes such as 6 versus 12 characters on win numbers could result into more than 300 programming changes. Finally, we discussed some controversial concepts related to enterprise architecture such as single versus multiple sources of truth. The order of migration for different ERP components and prioritization of features, whether you should be first focusing on simple concepts or edge cases that are likely to break your architecture and systems. Let me introduce Tom to you. Tom is the founder and president of Integrated Information Systems, I2S. He has 36 years of experience in MRP and enterprise software design, development, support, and analysis with the specific expertise supporting U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, major defense contractors, and their suppliers. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hey, Tom. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. It's good to be with you. Yeah, and I am super excited to have you as well, because the kind of stories that you are going to have, especially when we think of these bigger ERP implementations, it's always so much fun discussing all of that. Before we do that, if our audience does not know about you, do you want to share your personal story and then your current focus, Tom? I'll try to give you a condensed version. Brevity is not in my repertoire. But basically, I am a math major who likes to solve problems. And uh, my first computer class was in seventh grade, which would have been in 1971. And that's the only formal training I've ever had in programming. I know most people don't think computers existed back then, but they did. And I tried to teach it how to shuffle and deal a deck of cards and ran out of memory. So a few years later, uh, when uh, Radio Shack first came out with their computers, I spent a Saturday morning teaching a computer how to draw a circle in basic. I just loved learning what computers can do. Uh, A math major at Wake Forest, went on to four years in the Army. My boss in the Army had a computer desktop, old HP9845, that he was using to do briefing slides. I asked him if I could use it to do some simulation modeling because the guys that were trying to do it were using giant grid spreadsheets, paper sheets, and, you know, adding machines. And so I learned how to use computers to solve human problems. And from my experience in the Army, that led to 
getting involved in Army logistics, simulation modeling, and eventually into the MRP, ERP business intelligence atmosphere. And I have just loved continuing to learn how the technologies continue to emerge and, and transform and how I've got to keep, you know, try to keep pace and surround myself with people that understand it better. But I love using computers to solve real world problems. I, I didn't come at it the other way. Okay, very cool. And by the way, I like your perspective a lot. Uh, honestly speaking, I mean, when we think of MRP algorithm, it's really simulation modeling. But surprisingly enough, I have recorded roughly 400 episodes right now and no one has ever used simulation modeling in the context of MRP. Can you believe <laughs> So I am almost shocked. So obviously, you know, I'm going to get a real depth from you today, which excites me. So before we do that, we have one of these standard questions uh, um, that we ask every single sure. guest. And that is going to be your perspective on business growth. All right. I, I'm, that's one of my favorite questions. I've um, been dealing with the question in a variety of forms for a long time. To exactly. me, growth is absolutely natural and organic. Uh, I've got four grandchildren, two more on the way, and nothing brings me more joy than watching them grow. They are not trying to grow. They have not set out objectives and plans and milestones for growing. They just grow. When, when people have difficulty growing, when businesses have difficulty growing, it's usually because there's some obstacle to the growth, some, some nutrition, something that they're not getting that is natural. People grow. I, I've quit growing taller. Unfortunately, I haven't quit growing wider, but I have continued to grow in my uh, understanding, my ability to communicate with people, my ability to understand broader and broader range of problems. Yeah, I'm having some short-term memory loss, but that's just because there's so much data in there, it's harder to access it quickly. People never stop growing. Businesses never stop growing, but you got to be careful how you measure it. If you're just measuring the revenue, you're not getting the depth and breadth of the impact and value that a business can bring. You know, your local grocery store does not have to get bigger to provide you the food you need. So size is a, is a weak proxy for growth, but I think businesses by their nature, particularly if they are healthy in all of the ways that we mean healthy, they naturally grow in capabilities and talent and resourcefulness. And that's where you really have to pay attention to the people dynamics. The relationship building is just as important, if not more so, than the technology adaptation and, and you know, numerical growth, if you will. So that, that that's kind of how I feel about growth. Yeah, is there a no, part B to your question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And could not agree more. I think the relationship building, I think people forget the importance of that. I mean, we can look at the technology, the algorithms, but it's about people, whether people are really able to utilize the technology, they are really being successful with that or not. So now I want to go back to your, I mean, I know we were discussing in the pre-show the other day as well, about mm -hmm. overall the understanding of math and the simulation. And when yeah. you think about these algorithms, right, I mean, see, it's easy as well as extremely hard, okay? And yes. they are hard when you are going to be thinking for you, it's easy because, you know, you have the education, um, you have been doing this for a long time. But for people who don't necessarily have the formal education, they try to underestimate how difficult it is to build those enterprise grade algorithms. So sure, you may have done this on a spreadsheet on your desktop easy peasy when you are doing it inside your departments let's say you are doing it in your production versus your operations versus your sales versus your marketing you know easy but when you are trying to create these enterprise grade algorithms it's very 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 hard and i think you touched on that the other day how hard it is going to be when you are going to be going to have the siloed mindset so I don't know if you're going to have any sort of follow-up commentary or a story that you might be able to share related to well, the whole siloed mindset. Well, let me just kind of start with some some general comments there. Yeah, and, yeah. and I've been a little bit embarrassed over the past decade or two about what, you know, my major, my, my, my you know, compadres in mathematics and statistics yeah. have done uh, with um, the way they communicate with the general public about yeah. uncertainty. There is no model that is a perfect fit for any scenario. You know, exactly. Describe the universe and give two examples. I'm sorry, there's only one. 
And so what, whatever you try to do to model, whether it's, you know, mortgage-backed securities or climate change or epidemiology, that, you know, it, it's not just garbage in, garbage out, right? It, it, it's the way the, the relative accuracy and sensitivity of inputs are treated by the model itself. Yep. It is the more complex the model, the more subject it is to human frailties. Things can be complex without being complicated, and they can be simple without being simplistic. Yep. If you truly understand the interaction of variables and uncertainty, people people have a lot of discomfort when yes. you try to tell yeah. them. I don't know. I've been in the hospital room with friends and, you know, when the doctor is trying to tell them, we don't know. And they almost just, you know, they want to strangle the doctors, but give us your best guess. Well, you have to, you know, point estimation is kind of the bane of modeling because, you know, when I say that it is two miles from my house to the grocery store, you can't tell if I have measured that out to 2.0001 or if it's, you know, somewhere between 1.6 and 2.4. The, the precision, the accuracy that goes into all of the inputs affect the model different ways, and you can get drastically different outputs if you're not being careful attention. You know, the, the, the multivariate regression analysis was my first job outside of, outside of college. Yeah. And just trying, to, this was just evaluating an education program and its ineffectiveness. And, um, you know, the, the result of the analysis was it wasn't effective and the colonel was not too happy with that result because he was a that project. But when you really are trying to pay attention to, you know, whether you classify them as the known knowns or the unknowns, unknown unknowns, when you're really paying attention to all the environmental, you know, variables, yeah. contacts, it, it takes something more akin to wisdom and art yep. to, to actually interpret modeling results with, with the full context, the full disclosure about what assumptions went into the modeling. So, yep. so the model itself may seem like the, you know, the magic box, but it's understanding the accuracy, reliability, credibility of the inputs and the interpretation of the outputs. That's where the human IO comes in. And so just that, that human machine interface in communication that's yeah. what drives the value of the model. How precise do you need it to be? What conclusions do you plan on drawing from it? So you can you can make a very sophisticated model that's worthless if you're not paying attention to what goes on in the whole dynamic. Yeah, some very insightful comments there, and I'm simply going to repeat them to make sure that people sure. are able to follow along. So I could catch some very, very, very interesting insights there. Number one, the context is really important, and it's not really going to be a science whenever you are looking at any sort of model, what is really important is going to be the art. Uh, then the human-machine interaction, and you are talking about multivariate analysis. A lot of people, when they look at that, they are looking at just some sort of you know correlation of variables. They don't think of that as the interaction of your context with your analysis, and that typically has a lot of impact on that. The more complex the model gets, the more subjective it is going to be. And it is could not be more true about the ERP systems as well, because the Absolutely. number of variables that you are going to have with these ERP, MRP algorithm, people like to treat that as more of math, more of science. It's really not that. It's art. The people exactly. who are really good at the ERP, MRP systems, they have figured out this art. The more experience you are going to have, under your belt, the, 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 the more um, you are going to get from your ERP system. So now let's get into the specifics of the stories that you have. Um, you know, maybe sure. you want to share any sort of implementation stories of the ERP. Sure. So, so, so I've just kind of been looking back, surveying my own story. And it, it, was, it was a little bit pleasant and a little bit frightening. But yep. uh, what I've done is I've gone back and, I, and I've picked out four, four peaks, four mountain peaks. Okay. From four decades of work. Yeah. So I'm going to pick one from each decade, roughly. That's um, amazing. Right out of right out of the army, I got a, a contract supporting. When I first started my company, I'd worked as a subcontractor for a while. Uh, so my first job with them and my first contract as my own business was directly with the U.S. Navy. Yep. And the U.S. Navy was trying something that, as far as I know, had never been done before, and it has not been done much since. 
They were trying to take a commercial off-the-shelf MRP system. This one was yep. written by Boeing. I think it was actually written in the 60s. Yes, people huh. were doing it in the 60s. And so we had to make that fit a U.S. Navy depot repair and overhaul facility that was doing multiple weapon systems, 3,000 yep. employees. And the whole idea was it was going to be an out-of-the-box solution with just a few customizations. Yeah. Well, my boss had already been there six months before I had, and he was ready to go back home. So he spent two years, and the, the scope creep was insane. We went from, you know, a dozen changes. Of the, the first one, the, the first change was the Boeing code had a limitation of six characters on a bin location. Yeah. And the Navy facility had identified all their bins as 12 characters. 300 programming changes had to be made oh, to wow. go from six characters to 12 characters. Um, by the time my boss left, the enhancement request had grown to 300. We just kept chipping away at the enhancements that were asked for, the new functionality, the new flexibility, some dramatic improvements, some cosmetics. And 36 years later, I'm still here. So the first implementation was supposed to be out of the box. And it was because yep. it was a phased implementation. Yeah. And the way they phased it, I thought it was brilliant. I'd, I'd like to see other companies at least attempt this. I think it's a really good approach. They took their simplest product line yeah. and implemented that product line. It was isolated to a building, a set of people, a set of parts. Yeah. And so they implemented that product line first. And yep. it went super smooth. The second product line was a little more complicated. And we had to tweak things to make it work more and more complicated product lines. Then they hit us with their most complex product line, one whose intended bill of material has 40,000 40, components, huh. and it choked everything. We had the, 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 the Friday night run finished Tuesday morning. Yeah. So we had to redesign everything. So the phased implementation gave the entire culture, including the programmers and even the hardware, time to adapt to the change. So I really liked that. It was phased out of about over 18 months. But the success of the easy product lines led to the, the, the natural organic improvement of the system so that, that we were able to, to embrace each level of complexity. So that implementation I, I stuck with for 10 years, yeah. and it just kept getting better organically with some really good innovative ideas. Then in 1996, yeah. that Navy base uh, became privatized. Congress was doing a reduction in Navy and Army bases. And so that one was isolated, was targeted to close, but then uh, four different private companies came in. And so what was one client became four clients. Yeah. And I supported those different four different clients in different ways over the years. Interestingly enough, two of the clients were major defense contractors that kind of split up the weapon systems, you know, yeah. on what fit. And the other two clients were really small. One was a paint and plate shop and the other was a machine shop. Yeah. So they had all, all those shops had been using one MRP system. And so now we had to figure out a way to, you know, split the baby, carve up the data and put together four different systems and four completely different stories. Yeah. So that, that split of an MRP system was, was incredibly challenging. And I just got a hotel room and didn't sleep much those weeks. So <laughs> that, that was a big story of moving yeah. from, you know, a, a U.S. government facility to a private facility. And I'm sure it wouldn't surprise you too much that all of a sudden profit became important where it hadn't been as much before. Yeah. The next decade, 2006, the Boeing software that we had modified for 20 years yeah. ended up getting replaced by corporate decision by SAP. They went on like a five or 10 year journey of trying to select yeah. one ERP system that would satisfy all of their plants. Yeah. And that's when I picked up client number six. Okay. Um, client down in Mississippi. And they, this guy, this plant was essentially led by an IT director who on his wall was a Don Quixote award. Yeah. He charged windmills with broomsticks. He wanted to be the first one in. He wanted to steer. He was brilliant. He was innovative. He was visionary. And he just surrounded himself. I was a part of a very good team. But it was traumatic. But, you know, first plant in, in a major corporation, in a whole new system. And it had turmoil. They had a, a person in human resources with a psychology background to try <laughs> to deal with the 
the impact of change on the employees. Right. I saw a lot of my friends burn out. I saw a lot of people get fired because they just couldn't adapt. Yeah. And, and the change itself was tough. I believe the consultants they used most were from a Deloitte, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And I found a couple of them, brilliant gentlemen. And I asked them from all the ERP implementations they had been through, how long did it take for the dust to settle and people to get back into their comfort zone? They yeah. looked at each other and kind of agreed roughly five years. And that ended up being about right. So, yeah, yeah. magic weekend, all the <laughs> software changes in one magic weekend. Yeah. The people adapt over a period of five years. Yeah. And it was five very traumatic years that was just, you know, part of the trauma of the change. Yeah. It just, people tend to forget how long it takes humans to adapt. And just, you know, out with the old and in with the new is not a great solution to the human part of the problem. But they did overcome it, and they survived and thrived, and, and they're still a client. So that, that was one way to approach an MRP implementation, ERP implementation. Uh, fast forward another six years, yeah. and um, client number two had been bought by client number seven, yeah. and they came to us to help uh, with their SAP migration. They did it in two pieces. They did uh, the manufacturing piece after the finance piece. They did the finance piece in 2012, the manufacturing piece in 2015. And this was after almost all of the other plants in the company had already migrated. And so they had already made so much customization and so much code that they were already way over budget and way behind schedule. And the entire exercises became incredibly rigid. So you had the Don Quixote who wanted to be the first one, and he got to steer. He got a lot of attention on making it work. Right. The people that really didn't think it was a good fit and went in last, they were met with what everybody else has already decided how we're going to do this. You have to make your business processes fit what everybody else had already decided to do, right. which was the equivalent of get a bigger hammer and pound harder and make that square peg fit in that round hole. Right. And what emerged was a different kind of trauma, you know, over the, the three-year gap between finance and manufacturing and then in the seven years since, seven or eight. And what emerged from the rigidity of the system that, that they were kind of being pounded into was basically, you know, your classic gap analysis. You know, what did you have before that you don't have now and how are we going to close these gaps? Well, nowhere on the flowchart was there an option to delay implementation. That, that was no, that's not going to happen. So you list all of the problems, and somebody, a committee, prioritizes them, and right. the team works on filling those gaps until they run out of time or money, whichever comes first. And whatever is left is a gap you live with. Yep. And this is where the human nature piece just kicks in. It's like yep. you know, you, you try to dam a river, and water has a way. Right. Of finding it's what people have a way of getting their jobs done, even when the software is saying thou shalt not. Right. So you end up with an awful lot of very creative. I'm going to give the humans a lot of credit yes. for finding creative ways to get their job done. Yep. But now you're diverging from the the ideal in, in some people's mind anyway, of centrally controlled and rigidly enforced. Yeah. Uh, business rules. And, and so now you end up with some organizations that are just saying, I don't really trust the data that I'm getting out of the system. Yeah. So I'm going to keep my own little spreadsheet that I think is more trustworthy because it's coming from people I trust. Yeah. And so upper management has this problem of, okay, I've got this billion dollar investment in a system, but my people are telling me the real answer is different. Right. And so here's all the overrides and the edits and the customization. And so, you know, their, their quarterly review process to try to put together an EAC, which brings us back into the modeling of future results, yeah. you know, yeah. to try to report EACs to securities in exchange. There, it takes them 13 weeks to do an analysis of the data every quarter. And then it's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. As soon as you're done, you got to start over for the next quarter. It is intensely human to try to overcome yeah. all the divergence between the rigid system yeah. and all everything the humans know that there's no good way to communicate with the system. Yeah. And so you start filling those gaps with better or worse automated solutions, manual solutions, spreadsheets that get shared or not. Yeah. And, and, and they're still kind of in that stage of trying to sort out fact from fiction 
on yep, all these yep. things. So I, I, I got to just take this opportunity. One of my pet peeves is yep. just, you know, it, you know, if this becomes a debate, I'll enjoy yeah, the debate. Yeah, go for it, please. Yeah. <laughs> but, there's, there's this philosophy that is out there that says that there has to be only one source of the truth. Yeah. And, and, and that just makes me cringe. Because, yep. it, you know, if that were true, then every court case could be solved by having one witness. You just find yep. that one source of the truth, and that's where yep. you go. You know, how, how many sources of water do you know of? How many sources of air? You know, I was in the hospital a year ago with COVID pneumonia, and that tank of oxygen was yep. very essential to me. Yeah. I was also, you know, fascinated by the fact that the trees going growing in my backyard were also producing oxygen. I just wondered if I couldn't go just sit under the trees. There are always multiple sources of truth. Always. Yeah. yeah. And um, I had a professor that said his daddy was a country lawyer. And if you ever got four people on a witness stand telling exactly the same story, they're all four lying. It, there are going to be different interpretations of every event from the different people that were there. Yeah. This is where I learned a lot from my friends. Uh, when I was in the Army, I was stationed at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, where uh, the Marshall Space Flight Center is. Yeah. So some of my best friends were truly rocket scientists, some yeah. people in the NASA. NASA had approached a problem solving that I just loved, and, and I, I hope it hasn't disappeared. When they had a hard problem to solve, they yeah. would set up three different teams, different hardware, different software, not to talk to each other. Yeah. If they all three came up with the same answer, they trusted it. If any one of the three diverged, they were sent back to reconcile the differences. There are always multiple sources of truth that need to be reconciled. That's how human understanding works. Even in our communication, there are things that you say that I don't understand and we have yeah. to clarify. And it's work. And the more languages and cultures and dialects and jargon and terminology, the more complicated it becomes. So the, the problem of reconciling inconsistent data yeah. one that should not be crossed over just by naming that's that's the authority everybody else hush that's not the way growth and truth and knowledge and wisdom happen you you have to allow for variability in your data and you have to be very serious about understanding what it's telling you yeah that there are there is a range of opinions Okay, so some very interesting commentary there. Obviously, all those four decades that you mentioned, very interesting experience, how you grew and how the system understanding as well as the role of humans grew in your career as well. Some of the points that I caught during your discussion, I am actually going to pick on all of those. First, okay. I am actually going to pick on the source of truth because that's probably my okay. pet peeve as well. Okay, so we are going to have a little passionate argument there back and forth. Okay, <laughs> so okay. I like to get into the specifics. Okay, how the model is going to be implemented. Yes, you know, we can talk all day. So single source of truth, multiple source of truth. But when it comes to the real implementation, a lot of people struggle. You also mentioned the comment about reconciliation. When you are going to have multiple source of truth, when we talk about human, human is one of the best creation of God. We are really yes. good at fuzzy logic. Machines are yes. not supposed to be as smart at this point of time. AI is not even 1% of what humans are capable of. Okay. Thank you um, for saying right? that. So, and by so the way, AI is not really good at sort of the relational data where you are going to have very nasty financial data. Right. AI is probably really good at that fuzzy, fuzzy data where you are probably trying to gather the insight from really, really complex insight. Now, let's go back to the, the multiple source of truth, right? So when I think of the multiple source of truth from the implementation and the reconciliation perspective, right. multiple source of truth, and I don't know whether you have some theory where we can probably implement multiple source of truth where the same data set is going to be sitting in multiple systems. If that is the case, then how is the reconciliation going to work in the realistic model, right. in the mathematical model? So typically from my experience, when I think of multiple sources of truth, what I have personally implemented, and even that sure. becomes very challenging from the implementation perspective. So typically that right. is going to be, let's say, if I have the inventory record, okay? In the inventory record, let's say if I have the part number, I have the part description. System A right. can have the part number. There might be multiple consumers of that part number, exactly. but there has to be only one source right. and one custodian. Okay, so the data so, can reside in multiple systems, but there has to be only one source and one custodian. 
if there is going to be any so, conflict, you sort of override that data. Is that not true? Let me offer a, a slightly different way of saying a very similar thing. Okay. I think there has to be a very clearly defined most authoritative source. Right. So, so people that go back in and, and look at ancient texts, you know, people that, that analyze the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're looking back thousands of years and still trying to figure out which of these documents is closest to the original. The authority and authorship are, are very much joined. For, from, from where did this, who typed this data in, exactly. and is it a trustworthy source? You always end up with something like, and I'm going to use the term I don't like in software, but I like it in knowledge, and that is a waterfall model yeah. of I go to my most trusted authority, yeah. and if I get a blank or a null there, if I don't have complete information, you know, I've, I've got a fragment, then I go to my second most trusted and my third most trusted. And, and if you get through secondary and tertiary systems and you still have an incomplete picture, it's time to, to, to raise the little yellow warning flag that I have less confidence in this data than I do in the data where all three of my primary sources agree. But I think there always needs to be a primary source where the data should reside. But if the person responsible for the material master made a typographical error on the description yeah. and somebody else corrected the typographical error, humans are incredibly astute at recognizing that a field that's supposed to be ones or zeros, and that's a capital I and that's a capital O, the computer's not so good at recognizing that I know what they meant. But, but humans can be very good. If you can manage to insert human intelligence in the right spots where it's not burdensome and cumbersome, but easy to correct mistakes yep. and, and not just override them seven layers down when you get to the report that goes to the CEO, to actually be able to get in, recognize, identify, hey, there's an inconsistency that here's, needs to be resolved, try to get back to the source and get it corrected there. If not, correct it as early in the data flow stream as you can so that all of the replication is coming from, you know, as close to the source as you can reasonably get. But, but the idea that you're going to find a flawless source is a bit uh, mythological. It, um, I'll stop there. Yeah, so honestly speaking, if you are building some sort of AI algorithm or if you are trying to replicate a human, okay, then it's a different thing. Right. But when you right. talk about the financial model, okay, you are right. trying to close the books to the penny, okay? The more right. the logic right. you are going to have, the more expensive it is going to be to debug overall. Yes, you know, we can argue that, okay, maybe we can have multiple sorts of proof. Okay, maybe it is, you know, not impossible to design, but what is the cost of doing is, is, is going to be a question. By the way, when you talk, you spoke about the human element as well. Technology takes only a weekend, but humans, they take five right. years to adopt the technology. So, so now so I'll tell you about one of the most challenging programming, uh, you know, tasks that were thrown at me is on a doc receipt of a purchase order in the original Boeing code. Yeah. There was absolutely no mechanism ever to correct an error. If, if, if a purchase order got cut on price and it got received on doc, that part was free from that point forward. There was no way to correct it. So they asked me to write the program to reverse a doc receipt transaction. Yeah. And it was reverse engineering the code. Go undo every data set that had been altered and, and if the part had already been issued, you have to unissue it, put it back in inventory, undo everything so somebody can go type in the overlooked. No, that wasn't free. That actually cost $500 a piece and then reprocess all the transactions. Now, that took me hours, days to program. But the amount of human effort that would have been required to do that otherwise yeah. was so overwhelming that they would have just lived with the error on the books and posted some sort of general ledger correction the exactly. following quarter, which is actually worse. You know, this is, this is the problem I've always had. And granted, most ERP systems start as finance systems. I have my own gripes about that. I really think the grassroots ERP starts where the people are actually building parts. But, you know, the, the finance mentality is there's no such thing as a mistake. You don't yeah. ever correct anything. You just post a reversing entry later. And, and the more you do that, I mean, talk about enterprise debt. 
to actually, you know, you see a transaction and you think it's trustworthy, but now I got to go search for any possible corrections that have been made in the three years since. It's it's extremely difficult with that general ledger mindset yeah. of just posting reversing entries. And and by the way, there's an, there's an awful lot of this in SAP's SAP's data structure. You know, here's a bill of material. Oh, don't forget to te- check the table to see whether or not that one's been deleted, obsoleted, you know, valid through. You you can't. It's very difficult to construct a system where you are able to make corrections in an orderly manner and still get a robust audit trail of what was the original entry, the correcting entry, and what is the truth, the corrected truth. Yeah, so some great insights there. So I'll tell you some stories from my perspective, okay? And sure. then we can discuss and debate uh, this whole notion yeah. of multiple sources of truth and single source of truth. So typically, when you are... talking about either human to human interaction or right. machine to machine interaction right. that's easy the reason for that is because humans are really designed for that fuzzy interaction okay they can process very complex logic in a very simplified manner and things are still probably going to be okay now when you talk about right. the machine to machine interaction okay right both of the machine is going to have the predictable model even the unpredictable model is probably going to be very predictable because right. that is based on some sort of logic some sort of algorithm okay but when right. you mix your human with your machine that's where the problem right. starts okay so i'll give you one right. story i we i was talking to one of the guys they are doing robots in the warehouse and they are like they are talking about these cobots where you are going to have human as well as your robot you know mixing that and and they also right. have the similar issues from the change management perspective so if only right. robots are going to be in the warehouse things are going to be okay because robots what they are not going to do when they are arranging the pallets they are never going to have that 5% deviation in the way they are going to be putting the pallet humans you know what this is a pallet okay go pallet go <laughs> and the next thing <laughs> comes and they are going to be okay in, in thinking that but robot cannot process that robots they right. know that if i am going at this particular location i expect my pallet to be in this dimension in this location if it is not there right. done and done i'm going to stop right there sure some robots right. are going to be smart but, but right. it's going to take forever to for them to be the humans now let's talk about this whole notion of multiple sources of truth right so in the multiple sources of truth as well when you are looking at two different systems if you are looking at two way sync if it is going to be machine to machine sync easy peasy because both machines are predictable as soon as both of the uh, you know models are going to be touched by the humans it's a very 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 hard to train them how to input the right data that is not going to have impact on your model the model breaks correct. as soon as the human touch so <laughs> absolutely correct so and and this is where i think we get into the topic that that i'm hearing just a few people talk about yeah. and that is software maturity Yeah. Uh you know, I had the huge advantage of having essentially the same core engine over a 30-year period because we kept inserting technology where it made sense but we kept the core architecture intact. Right. You can get a lot of maturity in that kind of lifespan. Almost no software is in use for 30 years. Very little software is in use for 10 years. But what you get with longevity is the maturity that comes just in the later years of maintaining this Boeing code we we saw this shift to where 80 to 90% of our effort was on validation and verification of input to recognize unintentional entries you know yep. the, the, there was this one sort of issue transaction that was very commonly used that would just people the, the experts they didn't look at the screen they knew what to type in part number quantity price enter part number quantity price enter somebody got off yep. by one line and entered a nine digit part number as the quantity and we were about to exhaust the, the you know the entire east coast supply of that particular form of copper plate before somebody caught it no that wasn't supposed to be the quantity that was the part number so we started putting in you know range tests you know what a human would just naturally do did you really mean to order 7 million of this or 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 did something go wrong so we just started and, and it became you know after the initial data entry you would see pages of very commonsensical very yeah. readable checks on this doesn't look right you know ask him if they're sure ask him if they're really sure ask for the supervisor's initials you know just 
stop because this doesn't seem to fit within a range of realm of reasonable inputs. It takes years to insert into the code those kind of business rules. Now, eventually we made it more and more data-driven. You know, what is the acceptable range, the reasonable range of inputs for the business critical inputs? Yeah. You know, is it reasonable to think that a part cost one penny when the last time you bought it, it cost $15,000? No. So, you know, how do you narrow that range and raise the alerts to the user to try to catch the error on entry? That's what I call the maturity. And it's the same way humans get mature. You know, even a parent of adult children, I just sometimes shake my head. It's like, did I not teach you better than this? You know, how did you not recognize that this was exactly. a mistake? And of course, they look at me and, you know, they say, hey, old man, you know, go, go take a nap. But it, it, it is difficult in the fast pace of software development and technology, you know, evolution. It is difficult to even comprehend how software can become mature, which is where I think you have to be really artistic on where to insert the human reviews and, and the really bright experienced humans that'll just spot something's wrong. That'll just look at, you know, a, a thousand rows of data and say, wait a minute, check that one. You, you don't, you know, yes, you can, you would, we're on a similar page with AI and I'll, I'll just throw this kind of comic effect. I will have more confidence in AI when Alexa, you know, my Amazon voice recognition, when she knows that I'm mad at her, then, then, then I'll have a little more confidence. You know, my, my three-year-old grandson understands when he's pushed me too far and I am now mad. And that's the way humans is like, hey, dude, you didn't stack that pallet correctly. Yeah. Well, it's an inch off. Okay, fine. Dude, you didn't stack that. It fell. You know, when the boss gets mad, there's a different impact. We exactly. haven't figured out, you know, maybe somebody has. I think it's extremely hard to, to communicate in business logic the criticality of an yeah. error. Yeah, because they're all, all errors are treated equal and there is no perfect input system anywhere. Could not agree more. I think the emotions have they actually drive the context as well, and that's why yes. you know humans are humans are you know so different. I mean, you know, people talk about right. machines are going to take over. There's no in that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, we mentioned earlier that the simulation modeling one one of my favorite simulation models is extremely hard to explain is uh, uh, asset allocation models with different asset allocation strategies. Yeah, because you know. FIFO or FIFO, they're, they're dirt simple, right? Yep. Except, you know, when you've been around the planet for a while, you understand that nobody actually works that way. Right. And the allocation scheme that the vast majority of actual workers use when they're going, you know, when, when you got five of a certain part and you got eight people wanting it, yep. right? Wh which five people get one and which three people don't? Well, it, it, it's who yells the loudest. It's who has <laughs> the biggest rank on their collar. It's, it's the prioritization scheme I call BOMB or BOMB. Yep. Yeah. I need to get the boss off my back. That's the prioritization <laughs> scheme is get me out of the doghouse. And that really is the way allocations work, regardless of what the auditors can detect as they scroll through the books. So you have to be a little bit more honest with your people about what the no nonsense priorities are when it comes to managing constrained assets and you know, the closer we can get the models to the way the humans actually work, yeah, exactly. things happen, you get more accurate results and more embarrassed humans because they really <laughs> want the computer to know that they did that because, you know, their friend wanted it. But it, all kinds of things happen there. Yeah, could not agree more. Great insights there. So, you know, before we wrap, I wanted to touch on one of the questions and, and your recommendation as well. Uh, since that sure. was more in the first decade that you did, right. um, and I don't know if the approach changed right now, but you mentioned that you know you were sort of trying to um, cover the simpler products first and then worry about the complex ones later. Uh, you know, and typically from the software implementation perspective, in my experience, right. uh, I, I'll give you a story. Okay, so this is a great sure. implementation. They were doing the implementation. They were worrying about the simpler things first and then finally hit the reality. And that is the consolidated invoice for the largest customer. That actually broke the entire implementation. They figured that, you know what, the implementation was never going to work. If I cannot please my the largest customer, 
then this system is not going to be of any use for me. You know, there goes your right. implementation down the drain. So do you still think that, you know, you should be taking that approach where you are worrying about the simpler stuff, which is probably easy from the ERP perspective, well, but it is always going I to be that one or two factors that uh, uh, drive the implementation failure. You're right. You are absolutely correct. But but I'll repeat something. I think you and I had an exchange on LinkedIn about this. That, yeah, yeah. that I am a stubborn and lifelong incrementalist. I have had to learn to resize and repace my increments. Yeah. Sometimes you have to take really big steps. Yeah. But that's a little bit more like scaling a cliff than walking around the trail. Yeah. When possible, I prefer to walk around the trail. I do think it's better to start on a tricycle and then a bicycle with training wheels and then a bicycle and then a motorcycle. And and the pace at which you can move from simple to complex, not just individual humans, but culture. I, I, I think the, the fascinating article I, I stumbled across uh, yesterday talked about uh, in 1950, the time phasing of strategic, operational, and tactical decision-making yeah. was just very distinct. You know, the five-year plan, the one-year plan, the monthly plan, the daily plan, the instant plan. And the, the speed of technology has collapsed all that decision-making to where they are almost simultaneous, where, where you know, people are trying to, to do, you know, close the books daily or hourly. It's like, yeah. I want a financial picture as of right now. Right. And, and the more you compress your schedules, the more you're eliminating the opportunity to think. And, yep. and, and I'm, I'm quite serious about that because, yes, I understand the, the advantage of intuitive software, of software that, that does the trivial thinking for me. You know, I don't want to have to enter my address five times. I, I told you what my address was. You should remember that. But, the, but if your thinking is that all the business logic is already in the computer, and my humans are only sensors, right? They, 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 they can't count and, and type and, and, and stop thinking because the computer's going to do your thinking for you. You are you're, you're absolutely discarding the most valuable resource you have. You, you, you need to pay attention to the acquired wisdom and tribal yep. knowledge of the people that have been doing this. And you have to give them an opportunity to keep up. With, with the pace of the information flow. Or what's going to come out the other end of the pipe is not going to be drinkable. It, it, it just, it needs to be filtered through for the wisdom experience of your best and brightest. At whatever speed you can make it work, but I, I, I do worry about the compression of time just falling in love with how smart the business rules are. You know, sorry, one more really bad analogy, but but I think the world's leading professionals at writing rules is, are in the U.S. Congress. Yeah, and because that's what they do for a living is they write rules, and the people that believe that all you have to do is get a bunch of bright people around the table and write all the business rules, and then nobody else again will ever have to think that that is. Such a plan for disaster. I know. That, that I even know it. You know, I, I, you're going to have to stop me when when it's time to stop. But you know, an awful lot of ERP implementation failures, yeah, are exposed by the the disparity between planned and actual results. And the the theory that the role of the executive is to yell louder is, you know, tends to be very heavily biased that the plan was good, why didn't you execute it? And to me, this is the equivalent of the owner in the owner's box questioning why the shortstop threw it the first instead of the third. You know, do you really want your shortstop to stop and look up into the owner's box and ask, where should I throw this ball? Or do you want him making decisions? You know, that, that the decision-making authority needs to flow down as close to the action on the field as it can. And, and I think that's very true in ERP. When, when the plan and the actuals are different, you got to be alert to the fact that it's very likely it was the plan that was flawed. And yep. the players on the field corrected it on the fly because they saw something you didn't anticipate in your business yep. rules. Taking that flexibility away is a is a huge mistake.
Yeah, could not agree more. Great uh, insights there. Do you have any last-minute closing advice by any chance we are close to our time now? I, I appreciate the, the, the clock. I, I tend to ignore it. Um, last-minute advice, pay attention to, to the human intelligence throughout your organization. You know, from the lowliest clerk to, to the most seasoned veteran to the to the new guy that just came in from another facility with new new ideas and different approaches. Just the you know, we we fall in love with technology. It's been my whole career. I, I appreciate it. You know, technology has been very very good to me. But but pay attention to the human intelligence that is just all around you. Uh, it's people are smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah, could not agree more. And my personal takeaway from this conversation is going to be, yes, pay attention to the human intelligence and any of the simulation or the algorithm are probably going to be art. So you need ourselves to be able to design them. On that note, Tom, I really want to thank you for your time. This has been a powerful episode. Excellent. Thank you, Sam, so much. Of course. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing the knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Tom, head over to i2s.us. It's i2s.us. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Colby Young, who shares his insights on the nuances of PO lifecycle and why it is critical for seasonal businesses such as cosmetics. Also, the interview with Phil Kerper, who shares his insights into executing on DTC strategy. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you, and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.